This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Heretical. I'm so excited to introduce our guest to you today. But right before I do that, I just wanted to quickly thank you all who support the show financially on Patreon. Tim and I care so much about keeping this show going because we've heard back from a lot of people um, just sharing about how helpful these conversations have been and how they feel less alone and less crazy. So many of you have reached out and we really, really want to keep this going. We do this all in our evenings and on weekends, just trying to hustle and keep this thing going. And you can help us do that. If you want to give a couple bucks a month to help us keep making shows, just head over to almostheretical.com slash give. Okay, our guest today is Brandy Miller. She's a former op-ed columnist for the Huffington Post and current campus minister at the University of Oregon with InterVarsity. You can follow her on Twitter at Brandy Nico. That's at B-R-A-N-D-I-N-I-C-O. We get into stuff like you know, how do we actually do justice and not just tweet about it? How do we cope with and what does it feel like to have people that we used to be friends with or respect think we're not Christians anymore? <laughs> so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brandy. Well, Brandy, I just uh, know you through a lot of your Huffington Post uh, writing and then Twitter and a couple other articles of yours I found and just really appreciated your voice. Um, and so I figured kind of want to hear your backstory and sort of how you got to where you are. Uh, but I, I want to read one of my favorite quotes uh, of yours, which is an opening line from uh, – an article you wrote for the Salt Collective, and I'll just kind of use that as basically kind of like an intro maybe to explain sort of how, what your journey is, how you got here. So the quote, it's the opening line, and the quote is, it took me 10 years of following Jesus as a black woman to realize that my theology was wider than a North Dakota snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> that That is accurate still. Yes. <laughs> So, okay, if you were to give us the longer version of that, kind of tell us some of that story. Yeah, so I grew up in a white family. I was born out of an affair and grew up in a white family in rural southern Oregon um, or in rural spaces outside of Portland. And so insofar as I grew up in general, whiteness was my primary frame for the world. Uh, and that didn't change when I started to do Jesus-y stuff. I didn't grow up Christian. And so... I got into church because my older sister started dating a Baptist pastor's son, so she immediately thought I was going to hell. And so all of my social awkwardness made youth group a perfect place to be because it was a place where people couldn't judge you for being socially awkward and weird. Uh, and I made a lot of really good friends there. Um, but I also came from like a pretty unstable background in, in a lot of ways. And so I think that there's ways that faith creates the context for some degree of security in the midst of other types of trauma. And so I found myself really attached to the concreteness of what was like very conservative, apologetics-based, rapture-oriented, uh, there's a right and a wrong and a black and a white. And I think that like felt really good to me. Um, and so in many ways, I think the social aspects of faith allowed me to be indoctrinated into a particular type of faith that I can't appreciate in many ways because what my background taught me was a love for scripture. Um, and a reverence for scripture and a willingness to ask good questions about scripture and to study it. Um, but what it didn't teach me was how to think about how to interpret scripture. 
Um, and, but, and because my context living in Oregon and being in various spaces um, that have been entirely, um, if not extremely predominantly white, everything has been framed through whiteness. And so it took me a long time to recognize that there were other frames to understand the world that weren't just what I had been told was objective truth, um, which I now know was run through an entirely subjective lens of whiteness. Do you have uh, or did you have a particular kind of light bulb moment or when did you start to sort of rethink things and uh, and change? Yeah. So I when I started to apply for college, I didn't know anything about college because no one in my family had ever gone. And so I applied to a bunch of Christian schools because I thought that's what Christians did. Uh, And then I applied to a small private liberal arts college uh, called Willamette in Oregon and for whatever reason decided to go there. And it's not just like a private liberal arts institution. It's like a liberal private liberal arts institution. And so uh, I don't think I knew really what I was getting myself into uh, in terms of education. Um, But I really didn't know what I was getting myself into in terms of faith communities. So I joined a faith community there um, that was mostly students of color or at least uh, more students of color. It seemed like that to me, even though I think maybe in hindsight it may may not have been because it was Willamette and that's just not likely. But I encountered a group of students who were really into Jesus. They were really into scripture and they applied scripture to their lives all the time in a way that made me realize that my faith was in my heart and in my head, but it didn't do a lot. Um, It was like a security ticket out of hell, but it didn't do anything. Um, And I was really intrigued by their way of doing faith, um, of learning how to try to hear from God. Um, It's stuff that I didn't think was possible. And the problem was that they were all really into justice, like super into justice. They talked about race and identity all the time. And I said horrible, horrible things to them. Like I said to them things like, you all are so liberal that you've lost the gospel. Um, I told them I would never take these like ethnic studies classes because they just taught people. It was like I was a Fox News prompter. Like I I was the Twitter troll embodied, but at a private liberal arts college <laughs> in 2008, you know, and so I I don't I don't know. It just felt like there were a lot of places where um, I was being confronted with a lot of ideas that I vehemently disregarded because it threatened truth for me. Uh, And then I was sitting one day um, with this new love for scripture that they had taught me and this sense of being able to hear from God. And I was reading Exodus, which will get you. (laughs) Um, And so I was reading Exodus 2. And, you know, it says that, like, God hears the cry of the Israelites. He sees that their oppression and their suffering is great and that God hears and sees and knows. And I felt like um, it's one of the only times I feel like I can say that I think I've heard the voice of God in some way. And it was like, if you want to be about the things I'm about, you have to care about what I care about. And this is it for you. Um, Hmm. And so I I just made me realize that like God spent the rest of the story of scripture trying to, uh, to liberate a people. And that I thought that their entire story was basically bogus. (laughs) So sorry, it's kind of a long version, but Hmm. So, okay. So I'm, I'm just really curious. So what changed at that point? Once you, once that light bulb went on, what kind of changed for you? Because you're, you're very much in the, in the justice, um, movement now and, um, very vocal about a lot of these things. And so this is actually, it's, it's actually really cool to hear what you kind of came from and this journey that you had. So I'm just curious what kind of, cha- what was the first few things that like changed that you started doing in light of kind of this new way that you were viewing scripture? Yeah, so I wish that I could say from that moment that I was just like so teachable and humble and kind and whatever. But really, I just did a lot of apologizing right away. Mm. A lot of my first steps were saying like, hey, I didn't know what I, what I, I don't know what I don't know. Um, I did a lot of 
going back and just listening, um, being more quiet in spaces instead of just being antagonistic. Um, I think a lot of the times when our antagonism is rooted in our ideas of truth, it seems noble or holy. And so for me to stop and to listen and to learn felt really, really important. And part of that meant that I had said before to all of my friends when I was being terrible that I would never take ethnic studies classes or from this particular professor, I would like never do it. And the next quarter I were next semester, I was in two classes in the department I said I would never be in from the professor. I said I would never take classes from. <laughs> and I think it was the first time in my life where it became clear to me that even if I, that I could both believe that the Bible was true and that the things that, that were tangible and happening in real life were also true and that there was a place where those would intersect. Um, that it wasn't just like, the Bible's true, therefore reality for people is not true, as I had been kind of taught to engage, but rather like, oh, how do I take scripture and actually intersect it with people's real lives like Jesus did? So you're, this is like... This is like the thing that parents worry about when their kid goes away to like a liberal school, right? The Christian, Christian, parent. like this is, it actually happened to you, right? It did. Yeah. I always joke because I'm a campus minister now. I always joke when parents say that I made their kids liberal. I'm like, I didn't make your kids liberal. I just helped them love Jesus when they became liberal. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, Okay. So I'm, uh, I'm really fascinated. This might end up being a couple questions in one and you could just do what you want with it. So... Uh, the first part is uh, you actually tweeted something recently that uh, a part of it um, really struck me as something uh, difficult to hear, which is always a good sign right? <laughs> that, I, that I needed to hear something. Um, it's You said, white people need to have an operating knowledge of the history of whiteness and its implications on power and privilege. Then they need to do something with that knowledge, and that something isn't to either be defensive, live in guilt, be uppity about being woke. And I think after those first three, I was like, yeah, sure. And then it was the fourth one you said is leave other white people behind. And I read that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really like uh, strong uh, point and uh, was pretty convicting for me. I think actually our stories in terms of even timeline of like how long we did the Christian thing where it was all white theology and then turning point in 20s and then it was probably pretty pretty similar. But rural Southern Oregon is like a while, for those of you listening that don't know Oregon, like rural Southern Oregon is, is a wild <laughs> world in terms of... <laughs> race, racism, uh, Trump politics, all that sort of deal. So how have you not left that world behind, I guess? And what was it like? You started apologizing to your friends that you had been trolling for a while, but then once you started moving into justice and and writing very public, bold words about uh, race and politics and Christianity, uh, a lot of strong critiques on evangelicalism, like, what has your relationship now been with back home, uh, and how have you uh, navigated that? Yeah, so it feels complicated for me in a lot of ways. One, because I'm not a white person, um, and so the degree to which I do or do not leave people behind is relative to trauma. Um, it's uh, for me, there's there's ways that like racial micro and macroaggressions play out in a different way in race conversations because the cost is higher for me. So as I speak to white folks, I'm not always speaking to myself in that way, but I am a person who, um, I, I think I want to be careful how I talk about this because there's, there's various frames that people come to this conversation with. 
um, there's like hyper left, hyper progressive folks who have spirit, who have or have not experienced a lot of racial trauma, folks of color in particular, who are like, it's not my job to educate. It's not, I don't have the capacity for that. I'm not going to do that. Um, and I think that there's a time for that to be fine. And I think in like secular spaces, there, there's not really a good incentive to educate white people. Uh, for me as a person who identifies as a Christian, I don't think I have the same option of leaving people behind. I also don't think that it means that it is primarily my job to deal with the most um, vitriolic, problematic aspects of white supremacy and racism for white folks. So all of that said, as I think about Grants Pass and Merlin and this like city space that I grew up in in Southern Oregon, it is, I call it like the Confederate South of the Northwest. Like it's just, it, it's, it's bad. Um, I have had so many problematic interactions um, that I, while I, while I have not personally chosen out of many relationships in that context, most of them have chosen out of relationship with me, believing that I have abandoned the gospel to liberal politics. So uh, one example, I uh, had been supported by a church. Um, I fundraised for my ministry. Um, I'd been supported by a church for five years. And when they had a pastoral shift, the pastor had asked me for a meeting. Um, and the day before I went to drive down to have the meeting, he called me telling me that I shouldn't come. And I asked him why that was. And kind of like I knew already, I'm not stupid. Like I know the, I know the church and I know the theology and I know that in many ways, love can only take people so far when our politics have become our God. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I knew what was going on, but he was like, I gave, I found one of your articles, um, basically disagreed with me having a black student Bible study on campus. Um, he saw one of my articles critiquing white evangelicalism just post Trump's election and said, you know, like we believe all lives matter and that the stuff that you espouse um, is, well, I basically asked like why. And they said, because, because of your stance on black lives matter, which is that I do believe that they do. Um, and uh, all the political implications of that, God forbid, um, and then he critiqued the, quote, liberation theology bent of my writing, which isn't the frame that I write from, which tells you how little he knows about that. But it was interesting that that was kind of the critique. And so I started to get a series of emails or letters or passive aggressive things from my support base down there that was basically just like, nope, we're not doing this anymore. Um, and so it was less that I left people behind and more that they left me behind when I chose into a different way of being. All of that said, um, to go full circle, right? I'm a campus minister at a predominantly white university in a city that's 87% white. I have a ton of white networks, and that means that I am constantly doing the work of, of engaging, educating, and befriending white folks and hoping for a more liberative way of being together. So part of that, I think, is just believing that people can be different than they are. Um, I say often, like, I haven't always been saved and I haven't always been woke. Um, and those are both, like, such subjective terms that it's kind of silly. But it is to say that, like, I can't just, I don't know how to say this any other way, I can't just, like, shit on people for being somewhere that I was and expect that they can't make the journey that I've made. Um, and I just, I knew people and had people in my life who are willing to come alongside me. So I am motivated in some ways by being that person who comes alongside particularly my white students and then helps them to have the tools to better reach white people so that I don't have to anymore. Did you need to take a break, though, in terms of 
from when your light bulb went on and you started to rethink things and uh, kind of your, your college years to then jumping into doing campus ministry where having hard conversations that are probably uh, triggering somewhat often? Like, did you need to go sort of collect yourself and then and then charge in there? Or was it pretty easy for you to just jump into doing that work? Uh, I don't think it was either of those things uh, because I, I went straight from my experiences in my undergrad into full-time ministry and have been doing that for like seven years. And so I did just go straight into it. But it's also, there's no like easiness to collecting or like collectedness, like to the work. Um, I moved to a city that's 87% white uh, two weeks before Michael Brown Jr. was killed. And so in the midst of that, I acquired this predominantly white chapter of students, like 30 or 40 mostly white students, most with no sense of their whiteness or identity development. And the first few months, all the way up until like the non-indictment of Darren Wilson and beyond, like there was just, it was, it was awful. Like it was so terrible. And, you know, it was that time when it was like a video of a black man being killed by the police was like every two to five days. Uh, it was basically constant mourning, but I think there is some degree of privilege to being able to stop thinking about it or to stop engaging with it or stop engaging with people. Because to be frank, this is my job, you know, like it's my job to love and care for students. And how I choose to do that is one thing, but it wasn't really an option to, to just opt out and stop. And so I think I learned some degree of character resilience and love for students and love for folks who aren't as far along in that, but it's not a um, process I would recommend most people following in. curious i wanted to come back to something you said a bit ago just about um you, you mentioned liberation theology you also mentioned this separation between the gospel and like what we what we're actually doing with our with our life and what's what's true to our feet and like what are we actually living out right and um i've just seen so much uh the ability to kind of separate like the gospel from social justice and the gospel from so like there's churches that are just like all about we just preach the gospel we're not going to get into politics we're not going to do politics or whatever from the pulpit we're just going to like just want to preach the gospel it's all about the gospel and it's it sounds like this noble you know we're just going to stay focused right but like i wonder how you have processed that and like yeah yeah how does that how does that hit you and like what what is that i don't know well uh there's another there's a campus minister on campus who says something to the effect of that to me probably once or twice a quarter like y'all are justice and identity and we're like gospel centered. And I'm like, what do you think that, like, what are you trying to communicate about what I think about Jesus and the gospel? Um, for me, I think that there is a certain level of like, you're saying like noble charge, like we're just focused on the gospel. We're just focused on salvation or whatever. And one, I don't think most of us even know what we think salvation means we can't imagine a heaven or hell like we have no concept of that and so we seem really preoccupied with a thing that we have no concept for and we call that faith um, which doesn't make any sense to me and if we really loved people and if we really believed in the gospel if we really believed in a salvific need for people to engage with Jesus then we would do anything that we could to protect their lives and their livelihood long enough to hear the gospel we say we want to tell them and I think that like with justice things like there we we counter our like people who believe that counter their own goals by 
not protecting the livelihood of people that they think need to be saved. Like if you loved people and wanted them to be saved, you would care about their well-being, like their day-to-day housing, food, shelter, oppression, you would care about that. So I think that's one piece. Um, I also think that to say that you just care about the gospel and everything else is a is like a side project is theologically irresponsible in two like foundational ways. One is that 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 ideology is almost entirely rooted in in Paul's writings, um, in Paul's Romans writings, in salvation and eternal life as being completely over there, like as other, as far away and not as Jesus talked about it, right? Mark one, it's like Jesus's first line on the scene. His version of the gospel is the kingdom is available right now. Um, so I think you, you take the gospel as a, you take the gospel according to Paul, or you, you take the gospel according to your interpretation of a book of Paul and then ignore the rest of what Paul actually seems to say about identity and the need to deal with identity issues in the community. It was his primary thing, especially in Romans, the like golden calf of all evangelical theology. So you like take all of that, you bastardize Paul over and over and over again, you call it the gospel, and then you say that's what you're focused on. But what you inevitably do is erase all of the story of Jesus that was inherently practical and on the ground. And so you not only take Paul's work and make a false gospel and then worship it and and push it out, but you take the true gospel and you erase it in the name of a guy who wrote about the gospel later. So I don't know. I think that's probably what I would, that's what I think about that, I think. Sure. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) I remember... uh... We did a, a series on gender a while back, and when I was kind of diving into a bunch of study, uh, <laughs> I encountered this debate between you know Bible scholars and uh, mostly all white dudes and standard uh, right, and there's this you know we did this whole discussion on uh, what Paul means when he's talking about uh, women being saved through childbirth and. Uh, and like that conversation is for another time, but I was just uh, reached one of these moments where I want to put my head through a wall. There's a whole world of Bible scholars, and some of them I had to take classes with at seminary. That literally their argument was Paul could never use the word "save" in a way that doesn't mean spiritually getting into heaven. So they literally took a word <laughs> and then said that the which is just a normal word, like to to save somebody, like to be saved from dying, right? And then abstracted that so much to this point of basically Protestant theology that it can only mean uh, some sort of spiritual salvation event, right? And then that was, of course, how they were justifying not taking a pragmatic 
interpretation of this passage that women don't want to die giving birth to children. But it's the same. I realize that's just the same thing extrapolated to the entire Bible is basically lift everything up to this, you know, <laughs> atmospheric level where it means really big cosmic salvation, but it doesn't have anything to do with like real life right now and people that might die uh, tomorrow. Uh, it doesn't affect those things. And I was just like, whoa, we're so far down a rabbit hole that like how, where is the good news, right? <laughs> like, I think it's lost at this point in, in Bible scholarship world. Uh, and I just remember seeing like, it's just so, so frustrating. So <clears throat> maybe to throw a question on the end of that, student walks up to you on campus and asks you, what is the gospel? Uh, how do you answer that question? That more full life and healing is available right now because God loves you exactly as you are and has, yeah, and has more for you than you maybe expect for your life. Um, I do very little talking about what happens when a person dies because frankly, Jesus talked very little about what happens when a person dies. And when his disciples asked him, like, like when people asked Jesus what it meant to be saved or how to be saved, his responses were almost always practical. They were never ethereal. It was like, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. It was come follow me, which is not, can you imagine if they're like, I'm just going to follow you in my heart, and my mind. Like if, if they had said that to Jesus, he would have been like, that is some bullshit. Like, <laughs> honestly. And so when people are like, what's the good news? Or like, what's the gospel? I'm like, well, the kingdom is available right now. And the kingdom is where what God wants to have happen happens. And what God wants to have happen through the model of Jesus and the, to sound like very Christian, like the, the testimony of all of scripture is like for people to have their bodies and their relationships and their experiences healed. Like that's what, that's what it is. And so if scripture is not going to be clear about something, I am not going to be clear about that thing. And the afterlife does not seem to be something that it's clear about. So it's not a part of my gospel presentation or whatever they would say that like whatever language that would you'd be used for that. Well, and that's got to present a radical deviation from the norm in a pretty conservative campus ministry world, right? Where for so long, it, it just meant gospel tracts, evangelism, and trying to get people to pray the prayer, that kind of thing. So like, how has that changed your ministry? Obviously, you're still passionate about what you do. You still uh, are doing the work, but uh, how has it changed what ministry is to you? Yeah. So a lot of it is that I just put a lot less pressure on my students and staff to get a, like a quote unquote conversion out of something. I think that that becomes like a, a numeric metric that doesn't end up meaning much. Because um, I think a lot of people stand up at a conference and never follow Jesus. And like, that's not conversion. That's, that's a moment, um, a single moment. And I, and I think that conversion itself is it's converting over and over and over again. It's a process, not a single moment. And so my hope in my ministry is to create opportunities every day for conversion for students, conversion to the way of Jesus in their relationships, in their mental health, in their sex lives, in how they think about food and exercise, in how they think about justice and the poor and all of those things. I think that every day is an opportunity to, to convert, which is like very, it's very, liturgical you know it's like it's very old that's a very old way of thinking about conversion um and so i think that's changed a lot of what i'm about uh i will say that i think that decisions do matter like decisions to follow jesus and like hallmarked moments of like baptism or eucharist or those things those matter um i've been reading the story that very weird story in acts 8 where philip goes and encounters the ethiopian eunuch and 
the the eunuch's response is like, why shouldn't I be baptized right now? Like something about decisions matter, but it's not a decision so that you transactionally are close to God again. It's it's decisions and symbols because decisions and symbols matter in every part of our lives. <laughs> like any relationship has those kind of moments. Yeah, I just think that I feel way less pressure as a minister to make things happen and more freedom to, instead of telling students who I think they should be, help students see the best in who they are and follow that. Because um, at the end of the day, I'm not going to be in their life pastoring them forever, but they will always have to live in their own bodies. And so I want them to know themselves really well and to call it the best in them and not just what I think the best of a, what a Christian should or should not look like is. So no, I love that though, because it's like, actually helping them be a better version of themselves be a better human being like these are things that i never really thought i mean it sounds so bad but like as a pastor and like um you know a christian my whole life like that wasn't really what i it was so much focused on what happens at this moment after this life is over that is it c.s lewis that says you basically become ineffective in in this life um and and so like yeah i just love that i love i love your focus there maybe this is shifting gears just a little bit, but um, I, I noticed some of your tweets are you, you're kind of calling out this um, this feeling of like needing to have certainty, and there's so much focus on certainty as a Christian. And um, I'm just curious. This last few years has been a process for me and 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 Tim to an extent, like of leaving a, a circle that we were pretty um, firmly established in, where everything is safe and comfortable, and everyone agrees that you're going to heaven and that you're a Christian and that you love Jesus and the Bible and all that. And, um, and even though a lot of those things are, are still true, we still like love Jesus, God, the Bible. And that's why we have a, a show where we talk about those things. Um, there's a lot of people that would say we're not, we're essentially not Christian. We're hurting the church. We're, um, whatever, just by, just by raising questions and talking about stuff and calling out things. And, um, anyways, okay. There's a question here. So when you leave that, uh, circle or you're forced out of that circle, or you're pushed out of that circle, whatever the circumstances are for not being in that circle anymore. Um, I, I've found that it's, it's, it's liberating, but it's also uh, it's also really scary and sometimes like frustrating and and sad. And I'm just curious, like, uh, what that experience has been like for you. Having I'm I'm sure <laughs> that there are people that do not think you are a Christian or do not think you are uh, you know the uh, epitome of what a Christian should be. And I'm just curious what that experience has been like for you to have this thing you care so much about and have other people think you're doing a bad job at that. Yeah, you know. I it, it's a little hard to say because I think the first things that come to mind are practical. Like the main impact has been financial. It's that I've lost probably like five or six thousand dollars a year in ministry support by people who don't think that I believe in the gospel anymore, um, mm -hmm. which is fine. Um, I feel like a lot of ministry contexts are people buying their own values and then investing those values in other people, um, hoping that like their ideas will become everyone else's ideas through the minister who they pay. So I, I don't know that I feel, I don't know how I feel, I, I don't know, I, I obviously feel like something about that. I don't totally know what, but I think that w what has been grounding for me and people not thinking that I'm a Christian is that I think I love Jesus more than most people do. I have come to the conclusion that like, I think, I think it's Rachel Held Evans who says that like the story of Jesus is the story she's willing to be wrong about, like the story she's most willing to be wrong about. Yeah. And for me, that that is true. Like, I I don't know how much I care, apart from like my like very fragile like existential moments about what is later. 
if it was just about right now, and if it was just this present moment, and it was just this life, and that was all there was to following Jesus, I think that following Jesus is worth it now. And so, like, I don't know that I could say that about a lot of the people who don't call me a Christian, or who, like, who, who say I'm not a Christian. I don't think a lot of those folks, if it were just about following Jesus with nothing to gain on the other side, that they would continue following Jesus. And so maybe that's egocentric or something, but I, I don't need anything from Jesus to want to follow Jesus other than Jesus. And so I think, I I don't know that I think that much about other people not thinking I'm Christian beyond the day-to-day impacts of that, because for every person that doesn't think I'm a Christian, there is a student on my campus or there is a friend that I have who's been alienated and thought that God would never love them or could never love them for whatever reason. And I get to be there for those people. So to be honest, I don't think that much about those people who don't think I'm Christian because it doesn't matter to me. A daisy said you love me. I thought I love the questions gotta decide which one um well uh kind of jump back and forth i really uh i really appreciate what you said about uh, ministry being way more low pressure for you and uh, i don't know if i've really reflected on this much but like i was a pastor for a bit nate was a pastor for a bit and looking back like in protestant white evangelical world where it ministry is about controlling people's doctrinal certainty. Like it makes you a pretty neurotic person, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like it's a pretty to think that what you're supposed to do is control everybody's brains, uh, to keep believing a thing, you know, with, uh, with no distractions and to like ignore the constant stream of, (laughs) of doubt and, uh, you know, alternative information, whatever. Um, I almost think it's just like malformative uh, for people. And I mean, there's all sorts of side conversation we can get into on how many lead pastors and pastor folk are just (laughs) emotional wrecks, uh, essentially. Um, Yes. But I guess just I want to say for anybody listening who is in ministry of some sort, it's like working in church world or parachurch world, like whatever it takes for you to get to a place where you can feel like you actually don't have pressure on you to control people, (laughs) uh, like get, get there basically, uh, for us, like at least for me, I just say it took leaving it to kind of realize, Oh my gosh, regardless of what I do with the rest of my life, I never want to feel like it's my job to control, uh, what people believe. Have, Have you felt, uh, kind of, uh, in moving in that direction, has it felt relieving and refreshing uh, for you? Uh, I don't know if it's felt relieving or refreshing. I still work for the same community I've worked for for a long time. So I've changed even though the community that I'm working for has not necessarily. And so I still sit in the institutional expectations of what I do and my own personal transformation in the midst of that. Um, I think what feels maybe, I don't even know, yeah, I don't know if it's refreshing or more just like sobering and realistic is that I've done ministry long enough now and and it's not very long. In the context of ministry, it's not a very long time and I understand that. Uh, I've seen enough people, like I've hit the crest in ministry where I've seen people decide to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus after they graduate from the things that I do. And I think there are two spectrum ends of what happens when ministers teach people. Cause it's not just that we control people as ministers. It's that 
other people learn how to be controlled. Like you can't just control people who have not learned to be controlled. And so I think part of the danger of a lot of the ways that evangelicalism works right now is that it teaches people through guilt and shame, um, through false certainty, how to be controlled. Um, and, and it is a temptation of every minister to have a clean kind of ministry where control is at the center because it makes sense. But what I've seen happen over the last few years, particularly in our political environment, is that when we teach people how to be controlled, two things tend to happen in their extremes. I think one is that we end up in this cultish faith experience where we see what's happening with the religious right right now, uh, a politicized faith that is so embedded in power and privilege and control that it seems normal, um, that we've made what is like explicitly immoral moral because we have so tied ourselves to the idea of control being what we need. Or we abandon it completely where people have no faith at all because they don't know how to have faith when their life experiences don't line up with the thing that they've been taught by their authority figures. And I think that's where some of the deconstruction movement has be, has picked up so much steam is that when people find themselves unable to sit in either camp, we don't know what to do. Um, and, and I have a lot of thoughts about the deconstruction, like the movement of deconstruction right now, but... I think that there is something about like, it's, it's not as much refreshing as it is sobering to go like, oh, actually, I think a lot of people have only been taught how to be controlled and haven't been taught how to encounter Jesus for themselves, which is a bummer to say the least. I'd love to hear your, your, uh, your hot take on the deconstruction movement and just, yeah, thoughts around that. I mean, I, the, the word for me is like, um, I've kind of, I'm over the word for, for yes. sure. And uh, so I'm just curious your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, my experience with the deconstruction movement is that it is largely a white liberal intellectual movement uh, that does a lot for people's inner lives, but kind of traps people there. Um, and if it doesn't, it like the overflow is usually like a really mean, uh, uninviting progressivism. That's, I don't know if that's a word, but progressive ideology that is like so progressive, it's exclusive, which doesn't make any sense. So we become the versions of the things that we say that we hate. Like, oh, we hate fundamentalists, but now we're fundamental. We're being fundamentalists about how much we hate fundamentalists. And like that, it just seems weird to me to like sit in the irony of all of that. So deconstruction for me feels hard because I think that some level of deconstruction is natural uh, and good. And we should all be in deconstructing processes. I think that when students lose their faith for the first time, they find they have the opportunity to actually find their faith for the first time. But I think that oftentimes with deconstruction, we, we give people a lot of tools to deconstruct, but nothing to reconstruct. And so we send people kind of curtailing into emotional, relational, spiritual fracturing and don't give people anything to hold onto in the midst of it. It ends up being pretty dark. And I know a lot of people who have come, gone through deconstruction, as they would call it, can say that like dark space was really good for them. But I'm like, I don't think it has to be that way. Like, I think that there's a way to hold on to a few things in the midst of deconstructing um, to be more responsible. Um, I think community and then like maybe like one thing you like about Jesus. I don't know. Like, It doesn't have to be very intense. But I think deconstruction puts everything on the table and makes everything subjective and maybe everything is subjective but I don't think I can as like a person who likes the bible and likes Jesus be like yeah everything's just subjective and do whatever you want like it's all and I can't as a person who sees oppression believe that and so I think deconstruction makes everything so subjective that no one's ever grounded very fully um and it's just kind of sad so I don't know I, I feel like I have a lot of thoughts about deconstruction that 
are like good and, and healthy, but I think my general take is, man, we, we help people deconstruct really well right now, but if people don't have anything to reconstruct or rebuild on, it just leaves people kind of feeling exiled or destitute without anything to to hold on to, so. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate those thoughts. I, uh, as you're saying that, I was kind of got this image in my head because so much, uh, especially pastors, authoritarian religious leaders, especially the big name people will say stuff like basically, uh, to try to keep people from ever getting close to deconstruction world. Right. That it feels very much to me like another form of just controlling your camp and trying to keep people uh, in house. And I just got this picture. It kind of feels like if you picture like a spaceship or a satellite in orbit and it's like, it takes breaking through that orbit of like authoritarian religious control, which just sends you flying in outer space. Right. And so we've talked to so many people that listen to the show who like finding the courage to actually break through is like a really big, uh, big deal for them. Um, because they've been swimming in the world of like, don't lose your faith. Like, don't ever stop believing. Like, don't question anything, you know, like suppress all doubt sort of deal. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, maybe, especially with uh, college age students, right? You probably swimming in, uh, people who are going through major changes in what they believe. Uh, how have you found ways to allow people the freedom, right? Uh, to change their minds and not, not be sure about what they believe and kind of question everything, put it all on the table, uh, but then not shoot off in outer space, especially alone, where they then find themselves with no support or friends or any of that. Yeah, well, a lot of it is who I bring in to, to teach and to speak and to have space in our community. Um, I think the more that students can find themselves in the stories of people who are like them, the better. Um, my, my chapter is about 55% students of color, probably 20% uh, identifies LGBTQ. And so I can't just bring like white guy Jake in every week and be like, hey, tell us about the gospel. Like, <laughs> like Brad doesn't have anything to say to my community that they haven't already heard. <laughs> you know, like, I, I just, and it doesn't mean that I don't like bring like white guys in to talk to us and stuff, but it does mean that like, I'm really careful about who I put in front of my students and I'm careful that I am not the only or even the primary voice that they hear. Um, I try to teach one to two times out of our 10 meetings every quarter so that I am not the primary person they're hearing from. Um, Because I think for me, indoctrination or like the ability to have, to like be outside of doubt meant just, it was because I didn't hear experiences outside of the one pastor who I was hearing every week um, at whatever community I was a part of. And it was always a white guy. And so I think there were just ways that like my own experience wasn't reflected. And so if I help students have their experiences reflected, then they can feel the freedom to ask the questions that those people have asked or to pursue the types of lives that those people pursue. Cause I think just having like faith models matters. Um, I think there's a reason that like, I think about like most white men and like, well, you talked about like CS Lewis earlier, like NT, right. There's like all these people who are these models who, who people can attach their experiences to or like, like their questions. Um, but because of the lack of access for women, folks of color, uh, LGBTQ folks, like because of the lack of access to the Academy, there aren't a lot of written models. Uh, there, there it's increasing now, but there weren't that many. And so I try to help shift that by bringing in people for my students to hear from. Uh, we also do a type of Bible study. That's just really based around questions. Like, 
it's not I ask a question and you answer it. It's, hey, what are, what are your questions about this text? What bugs you about this? What is what is weird about this to you? What What is confusing? What is frustrating? What does this make you feel? Um, so making the text more accessible to a human, not like a doctrinal robot, because I think that's what we try to do with most Bible study guides. So hmm. try to like help them actually bring their experience to the text because Jesus doesn't want to transform the fake version of them or like the fronting doctrinally savvy version of them but the real version of them like the real them that exists in flesh and blood so hmm. try to give a lot of space for that and then finally i think we like do a lot of things that are really practical like we're doing stuff around environmental care and the ethics of the land and we do identity development conferences or mini trainings for folks throughout the year we're going to talk soon about christians and mental health uh, most of my leaders team is in therapy like it's like really practical stuff that like things that the church say are like marks of bad faith, like that therapy is the mark of bad faith because you didn't pray your mental health crises away. I'm like, no, let's actually model a different way of us all saying like, yeah, we're all doing this. Okay, cool. Great. So I think just modeling different ways for people and giving people on ramps to the text and to spirituality that aren't just white male, evangelical, Protestant. They can, they can look on Twitter, like a dumb Twitter timeline all day for that. I don't need to give that to them. Yeah. I think the one you mentioned too, uh, of just delegating voices, right? Like not being the, the voice all the time and not having the final say, uh, that's such a simple way to model the Christian way of power that I basically begged our church to embody for years until I just realized it was, it was just never going to happen. Uh, the control over, pulpit, the control over decision-making, the control over a small, limited group of people. Um, I just realized, like, we had different Christianities. Like, mine was a Christianity of giving away your power and privilege and, and finding ways to practice that and recognize when it's hard. And uh, most people around me, both, like you're saying, the people who had been controlled, or sorry, been uh, taught to be controlled, and the people who had embodied this way of controlling for so long, Actually, I realized both, neither of them wanted to break free from the mold. Like there were a lot of people that really wanted authoritarian religion and one strong figure who was going to like, you know, captain the ship um, where they didn't actually want delegation. And then I, I just kind of had to break away for me, like the thing I've reconstructed with is seeing that like simple acts like that of just like sharing leadership power is like profoundly beautiful and is a way that we can all follow Jesus without any like doctrinal arguments or whatever and makes like a like a legitimate change in people's lives and in the way we do community. Yeah, totally. It's not that hard. It's just god, it's so it's it's just not that hard. Churches do not trust their congregants. Communities do not trust the people who engage with them because if like if your congregation can't handle one person talking about something and having to discern truth for themselves or like pay attention to something, you've done a terrible job shepherding your community. Like all that that reveals to me, like when people are like, I won't share the pulpit, is that they are fragile, is that they're fragile and that their work is fragile. It just is. I feel like you know the church I used to work for. I might. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. Can we do, can, can we, can we do a segment, um, where I just read a few of your tweets and you give us like more, more information and like, 
like more than 280 characters you can keep talking how about that yeah sure <laughs> okay cool these are all recent ones too so um on the on the topic of power you said instead of subverting power structures in the places that we go the church frequently either gets in bed with power structures or creates oppressive power structures of our own yeah yeah so i think in the midst of being in a country that calls itself christian but doesn't model or value christ at all uh, we become like the people in power that we most attribute Christ-likeness or what we think Christ would want to. So if we can say that Donald Trump is like Jesus because he's hypothetically pro-life, which is really just anti-abortion in his case and in most pro-life people's cases, um, then we can say that like, oh, well, Jesus, if we think Jesus would fight for that and Trump's fighting for that, then Trump is like Jesus and therefore the power that he has is from Jesus and we would rather protect that power, engage with that power, institutionalize and systematize that power than follow the downward mobility of Jesus that didn't do anything like that. And it's true that like, so I, I my, like Luke is my core text. It's the book that I most sit in. And right in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 10 or the 12. He sends out, he sends out the 12 in, this, in, in Luke 10. He sends out the 12 and he gives them power and authority they go and they apparently succeed in the mission and then they come back having been stripped of all of their conventional power, right? Jesus says, I give you power and authority and then he takes away their bag, like their capacity to literally carry anything, their food, their staff, so they're like their weapon and their walking stick and their clothes. Like he leaves them completely vulnerable. He gives them power and authority and then strips them of all conventional power. But when those guys come back, the rest of Luke 10 is them being just idiots, they, it's where they ask uh, which one of them is the greatest. It's where they ask, or it's where uh, James and John go to a town that rejects them and they want to call down fire on the city, right? There's like all this nonsense that's happening, um, which tells me that the church is vying for power institutionally and within church spaces is normal and natural if these guys were doing it. And what surprises me is that in the midst of that, that Jesus still gives away power and authority, but it always looks different because right afterward, he sends out 72 more people. So I don't know. I've been thinking about power and power structures a lot, and I can't ignore the just utter nonsense of our current political and therefore church life that just vies for the same things that the disciples vied for in the time of Jesus. Can I ask you a nerdy uh, Bible interpretation question as a follow-up to your reflections on Luke? Sure. How do you interpret I see Satan fall like lightning? I I am not super sure um, <laughs> because I have to undo like I can tell that there's all of these things I haven't undone from like my really deep like Tim LaHaye was the theologian <laughs> of the times kind of work. Um, but I think that there is something like the, when Jesus sees the way of the kingdom happening, it would make sense that the, that, the, that Satan would fall like lightning, that that a fast swoop of the kingdom coming in would mean dramatic would have a dramatic cosmic effect. So People, when Jesus's followers go in vulnerably and invite other people to the life that is truly life, I think that has some kind of cosmic implication. So maybe that. I don't know. Sweet. Okay, next tweet. <laughs> Many white folks will quote King saying that they too long for a world where people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, while also embodying white supremacy, both in character and color. What they really want is no judgment. Dot, dot, dot. I'm doing the I'm doing the Stephen Colbert doing yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no one wants to look like a racist. <laughs> like, and the easiest way to well, okay, I think that lots of people think that the easiest way to not look like a racist is to 
quote people who people think are racial heroes. Um, and but quote those people entirely outside of the context of how they live out the thing that they're talking about. So people can say like, Hey, I don't want to be, I like, I want us to all to be judged equally. And then we're like, okay, well, you know, what would make it equal for black people. They're not being police brutality or like, let's deal with mass incarceration. And people are like, hold on there. No, no, no. Like it's too much. And I'm like, okay, you actually don't, you don't believe in equality. You don't believe in equity because that requires laying down of power but then simultaneously, you don't want to have the character implications put on you of the thing that you choose. So we can choose to maintain power structures and oppression all the time. And then when we're told that we're doing it, we're like, no, 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 Dr. King. You you cannot have both. So well, I think that's probably that. <laughs> well, I think that last line is like the last thing you said in your tweet. Sorry to be reading yourself to yourself so much, but uh, <laughs> that people just want uh, just want to get out of judgment. Uh, like, I think that actually is like a broad swath indictment on American evangelicalism that like for so much of it, what the gospel is, is I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. Yeah. Nate, you're doing too many accents right now, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, but it is that right. It's like, and then this was where I got into my, uh, I won't say deconstruction, but I think that is what it was where I started questioning everything and got really dissatisfied psychologically and, and emotionally with, uh, evangelical interpretations of Christianity because I started to realize what we were saying was good news is that people can go on being evil, but if they think the right things, then they won't deal with the ramifications of that. I actually started to realize, which I should have seen a long time ago, that's terrible news to the world. Like, and it goes against the entire, like basic principle of the Hebrew scriptures and Jewish faith, which is that God will one day come and enact justice and vindicate the victims. <laughs> yes. It's why you have prophets. Hmm. Yeah. It's not good news. It just, it just is not. Okay, next tweet. Let me just do like one or two more. White evangelicals have rushed to take a tainted gospel to black and brown children overseas, but have been quick to demonize black and brown bodies in front of them. We going in. I think it's still always about perception. We want to seem like we're living out the gospel to all nations while hating the people closest to us. Uh, It is much, much harder to love your black neighbor than it is to sponsor a child in Africa whose picture you can put up on your refrigerator. Uh, evangelical Christianity in so many ways has trained people to be entirely focused on credit um, and self-perception, not about impact. It's always about intention. It's always about what you think that your impact is. And the impact is never about what the people that you're impacting actually think that it is. It's why we have thousands of people going to Mexico, bringing materials that people don't need to paint orphanages that have been painted every year, because it's about perception. It's about us siphoning our holiness or our spirituality in image off of the rest of the world um, while betraying all of our integrity by doing nothing while we are here. Thanks for doing that. I know that was kind of weird, like reading your own tweets to you, but yeah, they all have more context. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have another question. Um, maybe as a way of like wrapping up, I, I'm just curious, like, where do you, I think someone listening could hear like a lot of, um, 
a lack of hope in a lot of the things we talk about probably on this show. And um, because we're just calling, we're calling out so many things that need to be called out. Right. And uh, I'm just curious, where do you find hope? Like, where do you see hope and, and, and what gives you hope? I think I'm relearning what hope is right now, because I think that sometimes hope can be kind of an opiate for engaging with reality. Um, but that is to say that I actually am a pretty hopeful person. Um, I think I'm just, I think I just recognize that sometimes for some folks hearing that question, it can be like, everything's bad, but like, what keeps, like, what keeps you going? And I'm like, actually, like, mm. I don't know that that's always super realistic. Um, mm. Because hope, I think hope is one of the hardest calls of scripture. Uh, I think uh, like take up your cross uh, to go and follow, to like drop everything and follow and to hope I think are the hardest um, because hope is to believe in something that you cannot see. And so I think for me, what does bring me hope in all of that is uh, seeing people doing things that I would never think of, like trying things that I would never think of, accomplishing things that I would never think of. Um, Cause it's really easy for me to get stuck in my little world of campus ministry or of justice stuff or of like, writing or publishing, you know, whatever, like it can be all of that. But I think when I see folks, you know, when I see the woman who just gave like thousands of dollars, and then crowdsourced a ton of money to get hotel rooms for houseless folks in Chicago mm-hmm. in this, like in the freezing weather, I'm like, Oh, like, I don't know if I have that kind of integrity. Like, I don't know if I would even have that kind of creativity to do something like that. And when I see people fighting for what is right, when I see my students undo some of their racism, when I see students' parents engaging with things that they would have never engaged with before, um, it makes me remember the fundamental reality that I have to come back to all the time, which is I haven't always been saved and I haven't always been woke. And if these people are being transformed, then it wasn't just for me or wasn't just me. It's like a movement that could be bigger than this. And so it feels very like eat, pray, love to be like small things over time. But, but it truly is is paying attention to the people who aren't just tweeting about the work, talking about the work, theorizing about the work, but who are actually doing it on the ground. So hmm. I, think, I think those people bring me hope. Cool. Okay, last question from my end, at least. I know you're supposed to, like, get all the, like, bad stuff or, like, negativity and anger. You do those first, and then you're supposed to end with the hope piece, but I'm going to go back. So, uh, and the stuff... Uh, you've written, especially the last year for the Huffington Post, the stuff that I've appreciated the most, like you've laid some pretty heavy public critiques on uh, on white evangelicalism. And I'm, sh- I'm sure you've gotten a lot of the same flack uh, that we've gotten and so many people get, the Rachel Held Evans of the world. It's basically you're just cutting down the church, you sound angry, uh, like why is this, this isn't beneficial, this isn't helpful. Like, why is, uh, in your mind, having tough conversations and saying things that need to be said and, and specifically le- laying critiques on uh, the, the Christian world uh, in America, why is that worthwhile? Why is that worth, for you personally, giving uh, a lot of your time to, uh, why is it not just like swimming in negativity and, and so much of the stuff that, that people can characterize it as? At a very basic level, I just think we can do better. Like, I, I just think we can do better. And I think that there are a million voices out there who are railing and doing and giving critiques who have not stayed, um, who have not been in it, who have not done like the, really like some of the, right, it's, it's the prophets, it's the late prophets who laid critique but stayed. Like Jeremiah stays for exile. He goes into exile with the people. And so I think for me, like, 
I can rail every critique that I do because I'm still here. Because I'm like still doing the work. I'm not just saying stuff to stir up drama. I'm doing it because I believe in the kingdom and I believe in Jesus and I believe in my students and my friends. And and so I think it's worth it Like because I just think that we can be better. I think that we can can do better than we are. And I think that people can live more full, liberated and long lives if, if we do this work. I, I do specifically believe that the work that we have to, that, that we do around calling out white supremacy and white evangelicalism is worth it because I cannot let us believe so easily that what we're experiencing right now is normal. Like, this is not business as usual. This is not Christianity as usual. This is not Jesus as usual. This is some crazy making. And if white evangelicals were just a religious block, like just a group of people who were white and evangelical, like black evangelicals are, that'd be, that'd be different. But they're not. They're a political entity and a voting block, which means it's not just about people's personal faith preferences. It's about people's personal faith preferences creating destructive life situations for other people. And so as long as the religious right, as long as white evangelicals are a voting block that's doing the kind of nonsense that they are, I think it is worth it to dis- to to engage so that people don't feel crazy all the time. It's the primary feedback I get from my writing, apart from like the horrible, horrible, horrible things people say to me, is, hey, you put into words a thing that I didn't, that I, that I felt but couldn't say. And so I want people to feel like the things that they're experiencing are valid and that they are not crazy in the midst of a world, in the midst of a country that is doing everything that it can to make people think that their lived experiences don't matter. I really appreciate you coming on today, Brandy. This has been really fun. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for talking with us. And thanks for doing that work. Uh, honestly, uh, I think it's uh, it's actually the last thing you just said, trying to help people not feel crazy. Uh, is one of our primary reasons for doing this podcast. Uh, and I, Nate and I have come more and more to believe that that's like sacred work that needs to be done, uh, especially in these times right now. So thanks for sticking your neck out there and doing it. Yeah, it's no problem. Well, today it isn't. We'll see if it is later. <laughs> <laughs> Serious. All right, friends. Thanks for spending some time with us. If you want to get notified when we publish our next episode, make sure you hit subscribe on this show in your podcast app. And remember, I say this a lot, but you are not alone. We're on this journey with you. We're here for you. And there are millions of others walking alongside. To connect with us, ask questions, share your story, anything else, just visit almostheretical.com. All right, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>